Uh, Matthew 5, 21, we'll read verses 21 through 26. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going to court with him, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless the reading and study of his word this morning. Father, thank you for these truths that we've heard in Scripture, read. Thank you for the, the truths from Scripture that we have sung uh, in these psalms and hymns, in these spiritual songs, Lord, as worship to you. Um, may these words fill us. Your words are the only ones that never fail, Lord. Your words are the ones that never pass away. Your words are the ones that will not be done away with until all is accomplished. So we're resting in what you've told us. And uh, we're, we're gathered here in this moment now to, to look at another section of your teaching, and especially, Lord Jesus, your teaching to your disciples and those who gathered in this sermon. May we have a glimpse of, of what you meant. May we take it to heart. May the Spirit illuminate our minds and our understanding so that we can see the, the beauty and the glory behind these words, the truth that is in them, and Lord, uh, we'll be held accountable to them, but help them to be not a burden, help us to see them in the context of, of your beauty and your glory and your majesty, and may we be very thankful that you have revealed these truths to those of us who would have never known them unless you had done so. May you get the preeminence this morning in our hearts and minds, Lord Jesus. May you be glorified and, and help us to, to focus on you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of the sermon this morning is, You Shall Not Murder the True Meaning. Let's start off by asking a, a question. It's a little bit of a lighthearted question, but maybe not. Um, have you ever had a, a near-miss experience with a police officer? Now, I'm not, I'm not asking for you to make a public confession here, but uh, maybe you know what I'm talking about. Let me paint a picture for you. You're driving along, um, maybe in a hurry, maybe not paying all the, the, as much attention as you should be. Maybe you're just going with the flow of traffic and... Uh, you don't even notice or mind your speed until you see him. <laughs> the officer that is pulled into the U-turn or the pull-off, and then suddenly, suddenly your senses are awakened and your heart drops and things change. And uh, you immediately become an award-winning safe driving enthusiast. Uh, if you had forgotten your seatbelt, it goes on quickly. You know, you look around your shoulder first, though, of course. Uh, if you had your music up loud, maybe you turn it down a little bit to a normal level. Uh, your speed drops inconspicuously to, you know, just below the posted limit. And uh, you might go from a hand on the wheel and a hand on your coffee to, to hand on 10 and 2 like it's a poster for driver's ed without even thinking about it. 
And uh, you drive along for a minute or two with maybe a little bit of a feeling in the pit of your stomach, keeping an eye in your rearview mirror. And after a mile or so passes and you don't see those telltale signs, uh, you relax a bit. You might say to yourself or audibly, Phew. you say suddenly, you feel better. You feel better about your driving habits. And before you know it, you're back to where you were before the whole event started. Now, maybe you have no idea, no earthly clue what I'm talking about, and uh, maybe I've revealed too much about myself in that little illustration, but I think you understand. Now, why do we do that? When we're breaking the law, of course, everything in context here, we're not you know, talking about murder in this instance, although we will be in the sermon. When we're breaking the law, why do we feel a sudden sense of accountability only when we realize we're in danger of being caught? Now, going five miles an hour, six miles an hour over the limit is a minor thing as far as offenses go, but the same tendency really, I think, is part of our sinful nature, that tendency to think it's only going to be bad if, if I get caught. Well, as we begin this portion, this really starts kind of a new section of the Sermon on the Mount. The verses we study today and the rest of Matthew chapter 5 Jesus addresses, I think, some of the root issues that make up that tendency. He has just told his followers and those listening that as far as law-keeping goes, the best of the best in that category had missed the mark. And he said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never even enter the kingdom. In other words, those who were best at keeping the law to the letter were below the entry level of God's kingdom. And the question would be, how could that be? And another question, maybe more important, is how could our righteousness ever exceed that level? Well, over the next 28 verses, Jesus begins to describe a kind of righteousness, maybe a kind of righteous living that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. A kind of righteousness that you could say is more than skin deep. One way of thinking about this would be this way. The, the scribes and Pharisees' righteousness was broad, it affected every area of life externally, but in a sense, I think Jesus points out here, that kind of righteousness was broad but shallow. Now, in these verses, the next 28 verses, Jesus will address murder, adultery, divorce, oaths, retaliation, and love from the perspective of the Mosaic law, and he will use the phrase several times, over and over again, he will say, you have heard it said but I say to you, or I tell you, he says that in every example. And in those examples, he quotes from Scripture. But it's worth noting that he is not contradicting the Scriptures that he is quoting as he quotes them. He, he already addressed that when he said, I haven't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Jesus isn't, uh, is, isn't correcting or doing away with Moses' writings. In fact, he's on the same side as Moses in this discussion. So keep in mind that in these teachings, it's not Jesus versus Moses. You could almost say it's Jesus and Moses versus the common interpretations, or really the common misinterpretations of the true depth and the beauty of God's law. It's also note, worth noting that in, in all of these cases, Jesus takes the surface level misunderstanding of these laws, we'll see that today, which were very doable and possible to accomplish and obey. 
and he stretches them out to their full intent, which is a much deeper and fuller understanding, affecting more than just the actions, but the very heart itself. We could say, and this is a conclusion that we've already come to from the Beatitudes, when we read, blessed are the pure in heart. We could say that true righteousness cannot just be formal and outward obedience. It must be and come from a changed and true heart. That's the kind of righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, and that is the kind of righteousness that works itself out practically in the ways that Jesus will describe in the rest of this chapter. And I'm reminded again of that. Uh, one of the verses we read when we looked at that beatitude, Proverbs 4.23, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. So we could say Jesus is talking here about heart righteousness, and the very first issue that Jesus addresses in this context of heart righteousness is the issue of murder. Now, this passage is normally categorized, in fact, I even have a heading in my Bible, and you might too, it's normally categorized as a, a passage on anger, and it is. Uh, we went over this several times, if you were there in our anger uh, small group study, um, but beware, and I'm giving a warning here for myself and for you as well, beware, lest we become like the scribes and Pharisees, even in that. Jesus is addressing the outward sin, or one outward sin, and he's also addressing the sin that precedes it inwardly. And we could, if we're not careful, take this just as another command, as if Jesus is saying, don't act angrily. And we could keep that command outwardly, while still harboring that same sin within us. We want to look at these verses in all of these radical teachings, and they are radical when you view them in comparison with the common understanding. We want to see all of these with fresh eyes, uh, we don't want to look at them with a, a formal legal mindset, as if, if I don't do this, then I'm righteous. No, we want to look at them from a perspective of heart righteousness. So here's a big idea for today, and really, maybe the whole section. Christ's radical but true teaching shows us that unrighteousness is more than skin deep, so true righteousness must be as well. We'll see this in a few ways. We'll go down through this, this passage in order this morning, starting with verse 21, where we see the traditional teaching. Verse 21 says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. The first Mosaic law that Jesus deals with, You shall not murder. And if you're curious at this point about the title of the message, the true meaning of that, then here's a spoiler. It's still wrong to murder, okay? Jesus didn't do away with that interpretation of this. We don't get a free pass. He doesn't negate that. But as he says, and we look at this, he says, you have heard that it was said. He was addressing probably what was known and is still known as the halakha. And the halakha were really, that's a broad way and a way of saying the oral traditions. They were passed down starting with the written mosaic law, and then interpreted and explained and added to, and they existed really as the teaching of the Jewish leaders, the 
Oral tradition was everything for the law-abiding and serious Jewish person. But as Jesus points out here, it often consisted of a misunderstanding of the law rather than the true meaning of it. So as Jesus said, you have heard it said, but I say to you, he is placing his teaching up against the common misunderstanding. And it's also important to note that Jesus is not simply adding his interpretation to the slurry of interpretations that existed. He's saying definitively that this is what it means. And really only he can do that perfectly. You've heard it said from those of old, to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. This was the common way that this law was stated, and it was really a, a combination of Exodus 20.13 and also a portion of Numbers 35.30. Um, this correlation was, was stuck together in this way, and this was the way it was repeated over and over again. You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Uh, we know the, the quotation from Exodus 20, from the Ten Commandments, you shall not murder. Uh, Numbers 35 says, if anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of a witness. No person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. So in essence, the simplified, boiled down teaching that was common was don't murder, and if you do kill someone, then you will be held accountable to the judgment. So what's wrong with that, we might ask? Why is Jesus even addressing this? Isn't that true? Well, yes, of course, that is true. But the question that Jesus is addressing and the, the teaching that's between the lines that Jesus is addressing asks and answers this. In God's eyes, does murder simply consist of killing somebody? Now, that may seem like a, a strange, crazy question. It may seem silly. Does murder consist of killing? Well, of course it does. Even Webster's Dictionary defines murder as the, the crime of unlawfully killing a person, especially with malice, aforethought. So why would we even ask a question? Why does Again, why does Jesus even address this? Is he splitting hairs here? And I think this is where the rub is. Jesus is challenging the understanding of one command. And listen, it might be the easiest command not to break for most of us. I can look at the command, you shall not murder, and say, okay, I got it. That's no problem. I am righteous in that regard. I am not in danger of any sort of judgment when it comes to that command. And you probably could say that too. But is that all the command was intended to convey? Is that the full depth of it? Well, let's allow Jesus to answer that question. Verse 22, we see Christ's radical teaching. You've heard it said of old, to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. 
Here Jesus sets his divine interpretation really on par with the command itself. Remember, he's not replacing the command. He's not arguing with Moses. He is replacing or arguing with or correcting a misunderstanding or a shallow understanding of the command. The command as understood was do not murder, and if you commit murder, you'll be liable to judgment. Now keep that word judgment in mind as we go through this. That, in the legal sense, was what was being avoided. Don't murder because you don't want judgment. And then listen to Jesus' words. I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. In other words, we could say our baseline understanding of that command is, if I avoid killing someone... I avoid judgment in that area. But Jesus retorts with something like this. Have you ever been angry with your brother? That deserves judgment. Have you ever insulted your brother? You should be brought before the council for that. Ever called somebody a fool? Well, that deserves the fire of hell. So in a purely legal understanding, we go from being able to say, yes, I'm righteous in that category. I have no fear of judgment for the sin of murder. To having to say, well, yes, I am guilty of those things, Jesus. The common understanding was, if I murder someone, I'll be brought before the court for judgment, and I might be found guilty and punished. That's the basic meaning of the word judgment. It's it's a, a human court where there would be some sort of a trial for the murder, the unlawful killing. But do you see how Jesus escalates the idea from facing a human court for possible conviction to facing the divine court for our heart's intentions? Now there's something really spectacular here. If we go back to the first prohibition of murder in the book of Genesis, listen to this. Genesis 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God has made man in his own image. Here, the wrongness or the unrighteousness of murder is tied to the fact that man is made in the image of God. When we strike out against another human and murder them, we are, in essence, God says, striking out against His image in them. Now think of this. Someone would have probably laughed at the idea of facing judgment uh, at the court for anger. They would have probably sneered at the idea of facing the the council or the Sanhedrin uh, for saying raka, for insulting their brother, or calling someone an insulting name. And their mind would have been on that human court. They would have been on the human plane. But Jesus changes the plane and the sphere of authority when he says, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Why such a severe interpretation? Well, if striking out against God's image in man, in murder is a sin, then Jesus ties the same idea that it is a sin that strikes out against his image to be angry, to insult, and to slander. It may not come out in the physical act of murder, but it exists firmly in the realm of the heart. 
Whoever says you fool, he says, will be liable to the hell of fire. The word Jesus uses there is Gehenna. We've talked about that some. It's the word usually behind the word hell in the New Testament. It was a, a picturesque metaphor for divine judgment. Um, it comes from the Valley of Hinnom, which was a place in the darkest days of Israel's history where in their idolatry they sacrificed their children by burnt offering. And in Jesus' day, it's commonly believed that this Valley of Hinnom had been turned partially into a sort of a garbage dump that was constantly being burned. And if that's true, then the image was, that was in their mind would have been a burning heap of garbage in a place where gross immorality and idolatry took place. And that's what Jesus uses to picture this divine judgment. And think of the depth of that contrast. In other words, do we think that we can be called righteous just because we don't murder? But Jesus says we're guilty. We're guilty of striking out against God's image in another person. And we're worthy of hell if we're even angry and slander and call them a, a fool. Now why? The, the skin deep, which is honestly the eyes that we usually probably look at these kind of commands with, the skin deep understanding was only concerned with the human court. But the human court can never see the heart. It can only see the actions. So in the human court, only the action of murder, or maybe attempted murder at most, is punishable. But in the divine court, the heart, the heart is evident. And the thoughts and motives are no less culpable than firm actions. Think of James 4, 1 and 2. James says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. James makes a similar bold statement. Why do you do these wrong things? And he says, it's because your desires, in this case, your wrong desires are warring within you. They're advancing within you like an army. And if unchecked, they will proceed to some kind of action. Well, we looked at blessed are the pure in heart in the Beatitudes. We define the heart in Scripture through all the different passages as the, the seed of emotions, the desire, and the will. Or it's the true inner man. Jesus says something similar with that in mind and with something similar to James 4 in Luke 6, 45, where he says the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good and the evil person out of the, his evil treasure produces evil for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Do you see what Jesus is saying then in this and in Matthew 5 and coupled with this idea of the heart, it's not righteousness to simply not murder. It is righteousness to have a heart that doesn't desire murder, that doesn't rise up in anger, that doesn't even desire to insult a brother. This goes back to the illustration of the police officer. Our minds are eased when we realize that we aren't getting pulled over, but what about the infraction itself? This week, as I was preparing uh, for this message, for part of the time, I was sitting at our kitchen table reading 
And uh, Michael had some snacks that were sitting on the table, kind of on the corner. And our dog, most of you know him, Knox, he's a big dog. He's about the perfect size to swipe the snacks off the table without even, without even lifting a paw. He can just you know, run his nose across the table and get whatever he wants without even trying. Well, we've been trying to obviously work with him. He's a couple years old. And as he was standing there with longing eyes, panting and intently focused on a muffin, I said, Knox, leave the muffin. Now, he didn't eat the muffin, but he still stood there staring <laughs> intently. Knox, leave it. He didn't touch it, but his desire was obvious. And as I had been reading down through Matthew 5, I, I jokingly said, Knox, uh, you have heard it said, you shall not eat the muffin. <laughs> but if you desire the muffin in your heart, you're guilty of eating it. I told him, Knox, lay down. And he begrudgingly, you know, with a big sigh and, a, you know, looking at me out of the corner of his eye, he, he moved away from the table, still looking longingly at the muffin, and he, he laid down. But... Um, of course, that, that little silly parable I said comes from the passage that Scott will address next week where Jesus addresses adultery, and he said those words in a much more serious manner, but the idea is really the same. It's not enough to not murder, and really, for our dog, I would want him to, it's not enough for him to not just eat the muffin. I don't want him to stand there staring at it and drooling on the floor either. And for us, true righteousness, heart righteousness it's not simply that we don't murder. It's that we don't want to murder. It's that we don't want even to be angry with our brother. Now think about this in maybe a more serious illustration. Imagine a person at their last straw of anger. They've, they're beside themselves with angry thoughts and motives because of something. They've reached the point where they've decided to act on their feelings. They, they go out, they purchase a weapon, they make a plan, they, they set themselves up to take out their target. They're perched in a hiding place. Their intended victim comes into their view and they have them in their sights. In their determination, they pull the trigger and the gun goes click. It malfunctions. The person gets away. The person escapes that human wrath. And we ask the question in context of this passage, is that person guilty of murder? Now, they were hindered from actually killing somebody. Uh, maybe they reconsider. Maybe they take it as a sign to cool down. They say, phew, I'm, I'm glad it didn't happen. I'm glad that I couldn't go through with it. But here's the interesting thing. According to Jesus' teaching here, he would say that they were guilty of the murder before they even pulled the trigger. Before they even had the person in their sights, Jesus would say they were guilty and liable to judgment before they even purchased the weapon. He would say they were guilty before they even had the thought of murder. He would say that they were guilty even at the point of this unrighteous anger. And do you see how this is radical? Do you see how the human court can never compare to the divine court in these ways? Do you see how skin-deep righteousness can never compare to the true, pure, and heart righteousness that Jesus is calling for in his disciples? 
Do you see why in this instance, it's not enough to say, I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't acted angrily. I haven't even, I haven't even physically or verbally insulted anyone. Now, Jesus isn't expanding the law to give us more commands to obey. He's revealing the true depth of the law, which is meant to show us the nature of God, to show us his true righteousness. And as we will see in the last section, the opposite of murder is not not murder. The opposite of murder and insult and anger is really love and reconciliation. So Jesus brings it to bear then. Our radical obedience. Look at verses 23 and following. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Jesus illustrates this first comparison in this section with what would have been a common experience for his hearers. The, The Jewish people in Galilee, where he was in that region, speaking, speaking to Galilean Jews, they would have all made the journey many times in their life from the region of Galilee to Jerusalem, to the temple, to offer a sacrifice. After all, it was the only authorized place to do so. And with that in mind, he says, if you're offering your gift on the altar in Jerusalem, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, probably in Galilee, you should leave your gift there. Make the journey to your brother and be reconciled. We've probably tempered this illustration in our minds because we have cars and phones, and we don't have to travel days on foot to the altar to worship. But Jesus' audience didn't have phones or cars, and they did have to travel for days on foot to offer a sacrifice. This would have meant leaving their sacrifice, their their animal, in Jerusalem for probably over a week while they made the journey back home reconciled with their brother, and then travel back to Jerusalem to complete their worship. This is radical. This is crazy, you might say. And that's exactly, I believe, what Jesus is intending. Now, later on in Matthew, Jesus will refer to this passage in Hosea, but I think it's fitting here. Hosea 6, 6, God says, I desire steadfast love or mercy and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. In another place, in 1 Samuel 15, Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. You could think of it this way. The letter of the law says, I must sacrifice so I don't face judgment. But the spirit of the law that comes through all of Scripture, 
the, the heart of God in his law, his character, his nature, his divine will in the law says, you should be made right with your brother. Otherwise, your sacrifice is meaningless. That is how much God desires true righteousness, true love, and true reconciliation. Someone may have replied, well, how could reconciliation with man be more important than being made right with God in the sacrifice? Well, think about it this way. In the same way that in the divine court, anger, an angry heart is just as culpable and guilt-bearing as murder. So in this case, reconciliation is on par with this sacrifice because a sacrifice given with this ought, with this something against the brother still in the heart is an empty offering. But the act of reconciliation is evidence of heart righteousness. Now, Jesus didn't say, don't offer the sacrifice, don't make the offering. He didn't negate it totally. But what he did say is make it with a right heart. And finally, Jesus gives a very practical illustration in the last two verses. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. Now, this is an example of reconciliation. In this example, the guilt of the person is assumed. They will face the court. They will face judgment. They will face penalty and punishment. And Jesus says, it's better to come to terms with your accuser outside of court. And there's a very practical point here that it's, it's better to settle if you're actually guilty, settle it. Don't face the full extent of the whole court system. And while that practical point is there, I think it's even a little deeper than that if we read between the lines. This is an illustration of reconciliation that shows, again, its urgency. Just like we, would, we are to leave our act of worship, even if it took weeks to accomplish this, to be made right with a brother. So here, Jesus says, you should be made right quickly, even immediately when we're in the wrong. In other words, to falsely defend our innocence and to harbor that bitterness is a failure to live at peace with one another, which the scripture calls us to do. We assume, I think, that the illustration is one of unpaid debt. Debtor's prison has been a part of many cultures throughout the centuries, still is in some places, and Jesus says, come to terms or make friends with your accuser. In other words, you might not be able to pay the whole debt, but don't argue your innocence and stand in stubbornness. It will not end well. Do you see how true righteousness acts practically? Not only are we not to harbor anger and bitterness and insulting spirit against our brother, but righteousness takes positive steps to be made right. Whether we are in the wrong or whether they are in the wrong. In essence, Jesus tells his followers to own up to their sin, own up to their failings, own up to their unrighteousness. It's not worth fighting for your innocence when the law has you pinned. And how does this apply, we would ask? Well, think of the radical kind of righteousness that Jesus is calling for. Okay, he's just taken the command to not murder, and he's now 
shown us the broad and true meaning that that applies not just to murder, but also to the heart and tensions that lead to that. That's the radical kind of righteousness that he's calling for. The radical nature of this heart righteousness, this true righteousness that is demanded, it throws us back on mercy, as we said last week, and it really throws the hearers back on the Beatitudes. Think of this. Instead of standing, boasting of our own innocence, saying, I'm not a murderer, I've never killed anyone, Jesus shows us that we are, in fact, guilty. Which is why it is blessed to be poor in spirit. It is blessed to mourn. It is blessed to be meek rather than boastful. It's blessed to hunger and thirst for righteousness rather than assuming we already have it attained. The Beatitudes show a heart transformation where the scribes and Pharisees in Jesus' illustration simply exhibited skin deep and formal obedience. And I think a big application is this. We must never attempt to stand before God with skin deep righteousness and boast of our obedience. If we're perfectly honest, we'll see it today, we'll see it next week, we'll see it in the weeks to come. If we're perfectly honest, Jesus' teachings have shown us each to be guilty in the truest sense. Remember, if we're angry, we're liable to judgment. If we insult, we're liable to the counsel. If we say, you fool, we're liable to the fire of hell. If we boast in our own righteousness, we will truly face the wrath of God until we've paid the last penny. And in the divine court, we can never pay the last penny. To run from God's judgment while boasting in our own goodness is a mark of rebellion, not of faith. But we are called, brothers and sisters, to much much more. Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to this world. You could say this world system, this world's understanding, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. May we pray for changed hearts and renewed minds, Christ is in the business of heart and mind changing, not merely affecting our outward obedience. Christ isn't just interested in keeping us from murdering one another. No, he wants us to be the kind of people and makes us to be the kind of people who would reconcile with one another and love one another. Christ brings true heart righteousness. That is the righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. That is the righteousness that, that sees God in the law, sees his beauty and his heart. Rather than seeing a list that we can conquer and complete, we see ourselves as unworthy recipients of his grace and of his righteousness. Christ's radical but true teaching shows us that unrighteousness is more than skin deep, so true righteousness must be as well.